Such a great episode for you today. How have we gone so many years without having an episode about ayahuasca? Oh my goodness, long overdue. I do try to keep my my psychedelic work and advocacy and research a, a slightly separate from this podcast. I just like having my three different worlds of stand-up and my science podcast and my psychedelic stuff, and it is fun when I get to mix them all together in one episode like this that I know you guys are going to love. And speaking of psychedelics, make sure and check out there are still spots left to come to a legal psilocybin mushroom retreat with me in Jamaica in mid-January. Go to shanemoss.com to find out more. And guys... Speaking of learning fun things, people are like, geez, how does this host know so many things and ask such great science questions? (laughs) You're probably not thinking that. In my mind, I would love it if that's what you're thinking. Wow, how does he know all this stuff? Well, one of the ways I know all this stuff is because I take a lot of classes. I don't have a college education or anything guys and i might have missed out on some of that and i I might have missed out on taking school a little more seriously but i am making up for it now with the great courses plus program guys i've been taking online courses for years and years and years i think they're one of the most amazing things about modern human existence that we can get the top of the line education these classes that i'm taking with the great courses plus.com slash here we are to try your first free month today these courses are uh they're the best academics in the best schools teaching the subjects that they're the expert on that they teach better than anybody and they're giving it their best if if you went to college and there's a lot of great things to going to college and and being able to answer ask a bunch of questions and be involved in all all the various other things that come along with the social life of college and everything else however your professor a lot of times they're teaching something that they might not themselves be it might not be their their strongest subject sometimes they're hungover sometimes they just aren't that great of a teacher a million things can happen at any one university and with the great courses plus you can choose all of the classes that you want to take and it's the best teachers you can you can take a class or two if you're not digging it try out a different one i just finished why you are who you are investigations into human personality one of my favorite classes that i've ever taken hyper accessible if you've never taken a science class before this is something this would be a great first science class very 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 accessible and at the same time mind-blowing hearing all about personality differences how they drive behavior why haven't you already got the great courses plus.com slash here we are what is it about your personality that hasn't had you sign up already is it that you're low in conscientiousness maybe you hear about this you think it's a good idea but you just forget you oh you got a bunch of other things going on your life's chaotic you're not 
organized. You got to work on that conscientiousness, perhaps. Perhaps you're you're a little low in agreeability. You're like, screw this guy. What's he know about anything telling me how I should go about learning what I should listen to in my in my car and, and watch in front of my computer? Maybe it's something to do with neuroticism and Maybe you got some low self-esteem issues. I'm not going to understand a course on personality differences. Maybe it's extroversion. Uh, is it? Uh, I, maybe you're just out there. You're just too much of a social butterfly. You're out there just needing party day and night. I don't have time to be learning. Well, you'd be wrong. You'll be more interesting at these parties. Openness. You're a little low in openness means you're a little you're a little used to the traditions and norms not so much into the learning new things having new experiences maybe even some aversions to that i don't know what it is maybe maybe all those things combined is why you haven't taken the opportunity to get your free month today sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i am talking with the author of the book when plants dream ayahuasca amazonian shamanism and the global psychedelic renaissance written with daniel pinchback and my guest today sophia rocklin is joining me (laughs) so this is going to be such an interesting episode because we're friends now. Actually, I guess this so. Is, yeah. Usually, I'm I'm interviewing someone I've never met before, and a couple weeks ago we were in a festival in Ozora. Ozora Hungary is my first Psytrance festival. He did well. Uh, <laughs> and um, Sophia and I met. Um, we were giving talks on our various subjects, and uh, I was doing a talk about DMT and. You're talking about ayahuasca. And we got introduced and we started talking. And then we just hung out for the whole festival and talked for like three days straight. And now we're best friends. And now we're still talking. Yeah, still talking. Yeah. I mean, best friends, or is it like, Uh, I think you're like, uh, I think that comes with time. Yeah. I mean, right now you're like number eight on my speed dial. Mm, Okay. Okay. Do you, do you have? Are you too young to know the speed dial? What I really, yeah, I know. I understand what a speed dial reference is, but I want to know if I'm on your celestial speed dial. If you're having a spiritual crisis or emergency, oh. who are you gonna call? Um, you're number three. Three on that. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It, it'd be a good resource for that, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're you're this. Uh, I I want you to kind of talk a little bit about your background. Um, I think you're a real impressive person. I'm jealous that you're you have your first book coming out at 26 years old, That's and you're true. already like you've already like gone through all of the ayahuasca of like discovering yourself and know who you are and all the things. I'm still trying to figure out at 39. So yeah, the trick is I, picking yourself apart and then putting yourself back together. So oh, many times that you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. People are always like, 
well, I'm worried I'm going to lose my mind on psychedelics. I'm always like, well, why are you so attached to your mind? Mm -hmm. If you lose your mind, you just make a new one. Um, (laughs) That's how minds work. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So why don't you share a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, Well, I'm... I won't get into too much excruciating detail, but I guess the important details are I am born and raised in modern day Babylon, New York City. I was like super secular upbringing and um, yeah, very lucky, nice childhood. Um, But I was always very drawn to ritual and community and just kind of like seeing how people congregate in ways that aren't necessarily related to like making money or doing, you know, more more practical sort of work oriented things um and yeah i, I started off as, as a teenager as a, as an actor actually i was mostly in film and some tv and voiceovers um can i ask you is this why you're so comfortable i'm I not sure you know i don't it. know i th- i it certainly it 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 it's an aspect, but I actually found that I was crippling, cripplingly humiliated when I would see myself on camera. I hated it. Mm-hmm. I really, really didn't like seeing myself taped. But what I loved was sitting in, in, in a place and sort of transcending this space-time barrier. You know when you're on stage and you kind of almost black out or something and yeah. you have this like energy of an audience and you're really holding a container um, and bringing people on a journey, really. And that's, and there's, you know, that's, a part of acting but that's also quite like um shamanic practices i would say i'm not dubbing myself a shaman but you know there it's i'm interested in these states of transcendence and putting on new skin and i'm um, seeing things from different perspectives so you know and I, so i acted for quite a few years um and then i was just you know sent to one too many auditions for ditzy blonde girl number 10 whatever um and and i left i would have booked you for number eight well (laughs) good thing you're not in charge (laughs) yeah so yeah so i mean so i I did that for a long time and then simultaneously actually as i was sort of easing out of the acting i was um enmeshed in the in the burning man culture in new york city which was very edgy and cool and that was in my my late teens actually i was so excited to get out of the house i was totally convinced that we were all in a jail and school was miserable and I which it kind of is I mean Mm -hmm. um and uh and yeah and then one thing led to another and I met I was at Occupy Wall Street actually um and I met some Native American elders there who were praying and they started to talk about you know some some sacraments central to their religion and, and those included plants like like peyote so um, I was fascinated by these plants that people were claiming to be so important to them. Uh, and that sort of kicked off my, what seems to be, you know, lifelong investigation into plants and people. Mm. And so, so then you went to college. I did go to college sometimes. No, I went to college. Um, yeah, I went to college and then I, uh, I studied anthropology and religion. Um, and to be honest, you know, this was happening simultaneously as I kind of went gonzo in the ayahuasca scene in New York City. At some point, I, I was going every weekend, which I would not recommend by any means. I think I just didn't have a point of reference. But I loved being in containers and little community spaces where people were just committed to getting to know each other better and getting through their own shit, you know, and improving themselves as people. And I found that like a really beautiful thing that I'd never found in my life before. So, you know, the, the ayahuasca is one component of it, but it's really the the environment that it creates and the community that it creates that was so interesting to me 
and yeah, and then I started to study anthropology, ethnobotany, all these different kind of things together um, in order to kind of understand simultaneously what was going on with ayahuasca, what was the sort of cultural context. And yeah, and then and then that ended up le- leading me eventually um, to where I had probably the most profound experiences of my life in the Ecuadorian Amazon, um, in the Sucumbios region, which is like the northeastern area, uh, which is home to a community called the Sequoia, and they call themselves the Secopai. Um, and they're part of a, a group called the, tu- the Tucano-speaking peoples. Um, and they're about a, in that area, there are about 130 communities that live clustered around the deep, deep rainforest there, some of the most biodiverse place on Earth. In one Hector, there are more plant and animal species than you'll find in all of North America combined. Mm. So it's just this like devastating profusion of wildlife and plants and it's totally incomprehensible and green and gorgeous um, and confusing and scary and painful, especially when you step in it or you eat it weird or whatever. Um, and 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 yeah, from there I just became completely fascinated by, you know, ha- hanging out with a sequoia who had been pretty devastated by an oil spill that happened in 1964 that a company called Texaco, which is now owned and operated by Chevron, mm-hmm. um, they're responsible for that. And they've been in, you know, many, many years of fierce legal battles. Um, and that has left many communities in that area really devastated, having uh, abnormal cancers, growths, you know, it's, it's ugly and the water isn't clean there. So... I went there sort of fancying myself uh, a cool <laughs> wannabe ethnobotanist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I left really, really shaken, actually, really, really shaken because I was having these psychedelic experiences with yahe. So um, yahe is, is another word for ayahuasca, but it's typically made, instead of using the DMT-containing leaf Cicotria viridis, it would be Diplopteris cabrirana. So ayahuasca is a combination of two different plants, typically, the Banisteriopsis capi vine and the Cicotria viridis leaf. Um, so when I was drinking with these communities, drinking yahe with a few elder the few elders that continue to drink because these days, you know, it's very common around indigenous communities in the Amazon that that shaman shamanic practices or any sort of herbal practices are seen as antiquated vestiges of the past that sort of tie them down to, you know, prime primitive behavior or whatever. It's it's ugly and people want to sort of evolve and move past that. But there are a few elders who continue to have that relationship with the plants and the traditions. So, yeah, I, I, I was drinking yahe with this small group of old guys and uh, having a really, really hard time. Yeah, like my brain turned into a jello field of petroleum and the, you know, the arteries and the, the joints in my body turned into little cogs of a machine. And I was really like feeling environmental devastation and degradation. Mm. Um, and from there, you know, I really felt that that the environment, that psychedelics and the psychedelic experience, seeing things from such a dramatically different perspective, were what's actually, you know, really welcome, if not needed, to to change the way we humans see ourselves in our environments these days. How are you received going down there? You're with all of these elders, and you're this uh, this uh, what night or 20, 20, 20, 20 year old mm-hmm. white American girl? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was the? Re- I mean, how did you even get 
uh, infused in that world. How, yeah. how did they? I mean, I, I searched around. You know, I, I have a great friend. Uh, his name is Jonathan Miller Weisberger, unbelievable human being. He's an ethnobotanist, and he wrote this beautiful full book called um, Rainforest Medicine. Um, and he's been working with the Sequoia communities for many years, um, and the Waurani and different indigenous people over there. Um, and I met Jonathan because he has a uh, healing retreat center in Costa Rica, actually. And they work with Sequoia elders, or they, they used to work with Sequoia elders there. So I met one of these elders, and I had a really very, very intense experience drinking ayahuasca with them. Um, and from there, I, I just knew I had to go to the jungle. I just, you know, I don't know what it was, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, you know, at the risk of being almost cliche about it, I was actually dreaming of plants. I was seeing, I remember going to bed at night and seeing these like totally seductive purple petals glowing in the moonlight. And they had this almost serpentine seductive energy to them. And then I would see these like big palm oil monocultures that looked scary and militant and and I just started to feel that there was almost like a, a personality resonating from these plants. And I, and I don't necessarily ascribe to that idea today, you know, that there's some sort of like a, a human-ish kind of quality. But I, but I do think that different chemical compositions of plants create different sort of ways of seeing things. And, and then they, and they impact us. And it's the way that we are impacted that almost reflects something about their chemical signature or their chemical character right mm. so that, that that's how i see plants and um yeah they they all have their own personalities through through their own you know ad adaptive techniques basically through communication mm. invisible means of communication and manipulating the world around them to to pollinate them basically to propagate them yeah so I, I don't know how it, you know, I, I, we've, we've talked about like our different perceptions of what's going on in these, in these spaces. And I'm just like so uncertain of my, um, point of view, which, it, 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 but I mean, it's just such a intense and interesting and, and very different experience. And, and when you're experiencing it, it just, it seems as real or, more real than the regular old perception we're used to having in everyday life. And I, I have in, in some experiences, it's felt like, um, you know, w when you're young, you're like, I feel good or I feel bad. And as you get older, you're able to articulate more nuanced ideas of, of different emotional states. And we kind of have different labels for them. And I mm. imagine different cultures have different labels for them as well. And I, I wonder if some states trigger certain, like almost emotions that are then, that are our, our consciousness then kind of constructs a story. And, and like in my experience, I've had experiences where, it was, it was kind of like a, a psilocybin in a float tank, for example. For example. It was, it was, <laughs> it was really intense, but very like kind of controllable. And it was, it was like I could go into this world that was like a kingdom and palace and religious things. And it had this feeling of like home and peacefulness and nurturing and security. And then I could go over and explore other worlds and there'd be like this weird paranoia world where everything was like really tricky and like more like, um, I don't know, snaky or something like that. Um, and then there was like kind of this funny circus world where everything's yeah. a, and, it, and it's, it's almost like this, um, 
cartoon metaphor embodiment of like a really nuanced um, emotion that your consciousness is constructing this this narrative mm. to um, to yeah. figure it out. Yeah, I, I was just reminded of um, there's a there's a cognitive psychiatrist. His name is Benny Shannon, and he and in his opus um, Antipodes of the Mind, which is about the phenomenology of the ayahuasca experience, he touches on these kind of archetypes or these sort of common symbols that people see as they experience ayahuasca. So he went and I don't remember what his survey group was, but they you know he was interviewing uh, many different people, people who are completely ayahuasca naive and had their first experience to well seasoned traditional healers. Um, and he what he basically found was that there was a certain frequency of categories that were coming up so it was very often that people would report seeing snakes or seeing uh women dancing or seeing palaces or seeing praying mantises right these sort of i've never seen the praying mantis famous praying Uh, mantis everything else (laughs) resonates with me yeah well that's like the dmt dude right i mean one of many right who knows or or the or the octopi these are also some interesting characters i've never seen the dribbling basketballs oh what? Yeah. I'm just kidding. I haven't I seen know. them either. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and in that book, there's actually a, t- there's a, there's a quote from a Jesuit missionary and he, and Shannon was kind of looking at like the, the most early, um, accounts of, um, foreigners describing ayahuasca. And of course they said it was like the devil's brew and it was <laughs> very freaky stuff. And one of them had a bit more of a, a heart opening experience and, and he described the way ayahuasca works. And, which could apply for psychedelics generally is like they offer visual solutions to personal riddles, if that makes sense. So like you're visually seeing some sort of a representation of a thing and it may not even have a name. Right. And it's almost, it's, it's ineffable actually, but it, it, it has a feeling. And of course with this like incredibly synesthetic experiences that we have with color and sound and taste all melding together, these these visual experiences we have are somehow representing like shapes in our mind and in our character and our body. And it's through the transformation and the morphing of these shapes that we can actually um, undo things in our uh, in our psyches, I guess. I mean, it sounds very abstract, but it kind of makes sense. You know, even with, even with a simple meditation, you just imagine a pearl or <laughs> some water and you're kind of working with, with that technology. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. You know, I I guess lately I've been thinking about it as your inner world's trying to communicate to your consciousness this this more nuanced thing that's going on. And they have like, you know, they can use your visual system, they can use your audio system, they can they can use your uh, other sensory input. And and I I, sometimes I feel like a a lot of like if you have an image in your head, um, 
it's like a uh, it's kind of like a archetype or something. It's like I, I think during my DMT talk, I was trying to explain this as as like say um, we were playing charades, and I got the word anger, and I was trying to get you to guess that I was ang- I'd be doing this very cartoonish shaking ah, your fist and stamping and your foot. Yeah, whereas. Uh, you know, anger is a much more n- nuanced and, and it can mm. take on a lot of different traits, but it's like the, the exemplar of that is, is embodied in this like kind of caricature of an emotional state. And sometimes that's what some of the psychedelic visuals feel like to me. Say more. I mean, it sounds like you're having a sort of a distilled experience or a caricature of some sort of a feeling. What, what do you experience when you have that? Do you, do you make any sense of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you see like an angry red emoji face and, or what's, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, I think that even in just everyday life, if, if you like, like I was talking with, uh, I was on Duncan Trussell's podcast mm-hmm. talking about, I didn't understand suicidal ideation from a, from an evolutionary perspective. Suicide doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, and why, why do you like want to, uh, you do something dumb and you're like, Oh, you want to like hit yourself or something. And this doesn't, it doesn't seem like it would be serving the organism sure. to, to it's like- act on that so so is this just a metaphor so so if you have an idea of like oh i could die right now you know people say this all the time it's like a little hot out or a little cold out right now and you're like i'm freezing to death Mm -hmm. you know or something it's it's just like a very exaggerated it's an amplified thing but that's what people say about psychedelics right they say there's they're amplifiers they'll Mm -hmm. kind of take any sort of mood that's already there and that's why people say set and setting right part of that formula is like the mindset you're already in so even if you just have a little kernel of an experience it could get totally exaggerated and you're forced to kind of look at it through a through a magnifying glass and it's like weird and distorted and wonky and you kind of see its shapes in a new light yeah for sure i mean especially with like boredom this is a really funny one that comes up in ayahuasca ceremonies you're like i'm so bored these guys suck do anything else and you you're like this is a totally exaggerated version of boredom and it's totally not yeah real it doesn't you know and it's 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 interesting to look at um and that's and that is i think sometimes would you say that's like on the upswing a little bit i would say that's after You've been going over a grocery list in your head for two and a half hours and thinking about all the dumb stuff you may have done. And oh, uh, yeah. yeah, it's like it comes for in my experience, the boredom trip comes right after. It's more it's usually it's boredom, but it's also just like get me out of my mind cage kind of. <laughs> yeah, thing. yeah. Well, because on the upswing, I'll have like a restlessness mm. like. I feel like I shouldn't be sitting right now. I should be moving. Or if I'm moving, I'm like, maybe I need to lay down. Like I just, whatever it is that I'm doing, like a feeling like I need to change whatever it is. And the trip comes on. And then when I have the grocery list stuff, yeah, that's just like, I get it. Yeah. Like I got that message. Someone once explained it to me. They they said it was like housekeeping. You're kind of going over all of these little mundane tasks or you're like basket weaving. You're kind of fixing, mending all of the little loose, loose ends in, in your life. And um, even though it doesn't make sense to us at the time, I do think that it's kind of file sorting in your brain. You know, all these things that are kind of left unraveled have an opportunity to be categorized properly. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. 
So I don't have much ayahuasca experience. The DMT experience for me is like sometimes I'm going to worlds that are familiar and I've had uh, like four different like reoccurring storylines that would come up. And then other times, you know, I thought I've done so much DMT. I've, I've had so many experiences I'm ready. I know like the world that I'm going into and then it will just be a completely different world and completely different experience than any of my past DMT trips, like completely unrecognizable. Hmm. Do you, is ayahuasca the same or, or is there like a a storyline that you're going through? That's a little more cohesive. Like DMT is definitely kind of confusing and all over the place. Hmm. I'd say yes and no. I mean, I, lucky for you, I do have a bunch of ayahuasca experience. So I've seen quite a, a wide variety um, of different experiences. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it can be everything from the grocery list to flying over ancient cities to being a rock and being stuck in a in an unmoving body for millennia. There's, it's super different. Um, and what's so interesting is that, you know. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. You were in a rock body I was for in a, a millennia? I was in uh, a rock forever. I'm always afraid that's going to happen to me. Well, I guess I just needed to be a rock for yeah. a little bit, you know, and I'm grateful for <laughs> it. I made it through. Well, let me tell you, I was a little bored. <laughs> it was a little boring being a rock, but I guess there's also wisdom that ultimately emerges from it, hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so, what's so interesting about ayahuasca is that it's you could give somebody a thimble full and you could give someone a cereal bowl full of the brew. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, I find that there's th- that the dose doesn't necessarily have a linear sort of outcome. You could have just a little bit and fly through the moon and take your clothes off and dance in circles and forget everything. Hmm. Um, this is not like a, I'm not advocating for that sort of behavior or whatever, but it happens, you yeah. know. Um, or... You know, you could have a big heroic dose and, 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 and not much happens at all. And you could be sitting, you could be drinking the same brew as somebody right next to you and the, and two people will have entirely different experiences. Wasn't that strong for me? Wow, it was super strong for me. And so that's interesting in, in the ayahuasca community, as it were, we have an adage that goes like the medicine will take you where you need to go. Um, and if you do maybe have any of these underlying things that are already kind of wanting to emerge or if things are okay and you're feeling pretty good then you know the medicine will adjust and i and i say the medicine i that i'd call that ayahuasca um that's a personal choice i make but ayahuasca is actually not just medicinal it's been used for divination purposes it's been used for um you know more nefarious purposes like hunting and casting spells on people and all this different kind of stuff but in this modern context it's more often than not used as as a medicine as a healing device yeah I mean, these are such tricky substances because of that unpredictability oh, from yeah. from being a shaman responsible for, you know, like, especially like a new person or whatnot, and you don't know who this person is, to, you know, a scientist trying to research this and mm-hmm. and have uh, have some measure of like controlled variables. Predictable, blah, blah. yeah, replicable results. It's like totally and not. from, you know, if I were a lawmaker... That would certainly give me like a little bit of pause just in the unpredictability. Whereas like something like alcohol, which I think is one of the more destructive drugs on earth, but one, I mean, you know, it's measurable and you can have like a breathalyzer. That's like, you have, 
you have three beers at this weight and you will probably, your driving will predictably be impaired by totally. this much. Yeah. There's a, there's a researcher, he's a drug policy expert named Kenneth Tupper and he writes quite a bit about ayahuasca. Um, and he's written a few great essays, especially in the political economy of ayahuasca and just the, just the kind of grappling with the, the, the idea of commodifying psychedelics. And it's quite interesting because at some point, you know, I don't remember if I interviewed this or him when he said this or if he actually wrote it but he was saying that psychedelics will actually resist commodification a bit more than uppers like you know cocaine or tobacco or any of these other kind of plants that have a fairly predictable uh you know experience and outcome for for users um versus you know you're, you're unlikely to see lsd mints sold in little nice packages at your deli at your corner store right mm-hmm. so that's yeah for sure they're very very uh, varied outcomes and honestly i think that that's what's so important about them actually is because you know when you're going into these experiences it requires you to relinquish your agency over the outcome and god knows we are most of us are control freaks and we want to know that we're going to be okay we want to know when we're going to get to the you know whatever we're, we're so obsessed with just having our environments controlled around us so when you're about to take a psychedelic of any kind really you're like okay like i mean you know anything could happen right now and you're just yeah. saying there's no going back and um buckle up and i think that that's what's so special about the experience actually is that you don't know what's ahead you don't know what's before you and that's so unique and so um geez i mean what else in life is like that Hmm. take a pill and see what happens right there i mean and that's and that's so beautiful that sort of suspends us in this liminal zone between here and there and you just become vulnerable it requires a degree of vulnerability and courage at the same time it's takes courage to be vulnerable actually and i think that that's what a lot of these psychonauts are you know they're vulnerable and courageous yeah yeah i, I would describe myself as that totally sure. nuts yeah um, <laughs> right I, I don't know but you get the I, idea right no, it, it no, takes absolutely. a degree of like i mean and yeah. actually it's funny because in my experiences i've certainly seen some people who do go off the rails and kind of abuse these substances because they're on some sort of a quest for I don't know what but I think generally people are actually really responsible with them you know they're really exploring dimensions of reality that that and it takes it takes time and planning and and attention to detail and it's not something that you just do you know whatever I mean personally speaking yeah I certainly put some thought into these things I mean I, I've certainly done psychedelics somewhat recklessly um, I believe throughout it. my <laughs> throughout my life um, but you know I, I as a you know self-described psychonaut I, I, it, for me it was not psycho. very much a mission to kind of understand these inner worlds better and and what they're about and and I don't think that I ever had any kind of an issue until I started filming a documentary and the constraints of like, we only have three months to film this thing. And like, oh man, I want to really tap into the space for it. And, and, you know, I, I told myself a story of like, well, I gotta, I gotta see the fringes and yeah. see how far it can go. And, and I'm cringing right now. <laughs> I don't think that the average person is going to do that because even doing that was like difficult. It was, you know, it, it wasn't like, I woke up craving a psychedelic experience when I started my day. I was just like, I'm going to do this again just to see um, what happens. And you really have to like push yourself past, uh, past, uh, whereas if it's something like, um, 
um, you know, I, I had an injury eyes on pain pills hmm. for a while and I could easily see how people could overdose on a pain pill because you're, you're just, well, this feels good. I'll just keep this ride going and, and not realize that you had a few too many. I don't, I don't think psychedelics are anything like that. I, no I don't feel like a, there's a natural craving. I think that there's a natural like curiosity or want to like fix yourself or something like that, but mm-hmm. not, not a craving in the same. I've been addicted to all sorts of things and it's a very different. <laughs> yeah. I've never been addicted to psychedelics for all the psychedelics I've done. I've never experienced anything that looked anything like addiction because it's hard work to do yeah. psychedelics right stuff comes up and things get awkward and it's i mean obviously you'll have the beautiful fractal landscapes and all these more you know pleasurable aspects but i would say people deal with anxiety they deal with self-consciousness it's like this little theater that if you're weird insecurities that just gets exaggerated and blown up and you're dancing around in circles with it for a little while and there's like this unique quality about psychedelics which is that they're you know they you get a lot of messages from them, right? Not necessarily from them, but you see aspects of yourself and their their learnings and teachings and all these different sorts of things that need to be integrated. Alan Watts once said, when you you know you you pick up the phone, you get the message and you hang up the phone as a, as a kind of as a sort of comparison to the psychedelic experiences like you don't just talk on the phone forever and ever and ever you hang up the damn phone and you go and you integrate what you've learned um and that's kind of my feeling about some things like even actually like burning man you know i see people go over and over and over and over again and they have these unbelievably transformational experiences and it's super beautiful and wow we're living in utopia for a little while and yet there isn't that practical application to you know your everyday life um and to me that's kind of like people just blah blah blahing on the phone for a little while without really translating it into practice not you know <laughs> not cropping on Burning Man. Yeah, I think it's yeah. amazing. But you get what I'm saying? Kind well, of this escapism. Yeah. Yeah, right. And and yeah. And uh, but I I also as we were talking, I was kind of thinking, you know, in the, in terms of the unpredictability of perceived subjective kind of intensity, I I think a lot of it is just because um you know, you're exploring your inner worlds unlike other drugs, you're going on it exploration of your inner worlds and so it's not necessarily like the intensity of the chemical as just like maybe exploring thoughts you're not used to exploring like i i had a i had a beautiful one on um, mdma which is not one of my favorite psychedelics but it's a nice easy one and and pathogen yeah and um i had a um a thing about i i i realized um, that I used to, I was inspired. I used to watch like David Letterman a lot. Um, when I was a kid, getting ready to do stand up, and I was like reflecting on that. And then I realized my dad would watch David Letterman, and then I had like r- memories of of being a little kid and watching the thing my dad was watching and not even understanding it, just liking that he was laughing. And I was like, Oh, I wanted to be the thing. That was bringing my dad so much joy. (laughs) And so it wasn't, it wasn't. We're so simple sometimes, you know. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, every, every psychedelic takeaway is like, already embroidered on your mom's decorative pillow yeah, right. at home. Ta-da. oh my god home is where the heart is whoa totally wow. <laughs> it's um, all about love yeah. but you know it, it's not i i would say that that's not uh that had that was intense but it wasn't like a 
it wasn't the it wasn't like a big chemical reaction it was big in a revelatory kind of way you know where whereas i might have done a higher dose of mdma not had any like big oh my god i understand my life in a different way and and therefore it's not as intense right yeah you're too busy grinding your teeth down and whatever, <laughs> yeah. trying to find a bathroom yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so um so you you do something that because here we are at this breaking convention in london this uh what what cool lives we have it's not by too the way. shabby yeah and it's even sunny here in london today so yeah that's <laughs> amazing yeah and and so you know this is i'm sure with with a, a lot of people on on the street that you say you might meet in new york they some people still have never heard of ayahuasca whereas you come here and there's a zillion talks going on about ayahuasca but everyone and their mom knows about ayahuasca here yeah yeah but <laughs> you seem to uh you seem to have carved out some a very very interesting niche when you you mentioned the kind of um what was that not consumerism but the um what was the word that you used the, the yeah was it consumer commodification uh, commodification yeah. yeah and and you're you're really interested in that aspect of mm-hmm. it and then its influence on the environment yeah right? yeah i'm i'm really interested in just well you know to back up just people and plants how people and but you know more broadly people and environment and how people's perceptions influence the way that they act upon their environment so like it's okay to mow down a mountain because there is perceived value in it right like there's a very specific set of beliefs that goes behind that kind of behavior and yet there's a very apolitical sort of conversation that we have about environmental change so Mm -hmm. in a discipline called political ecology we study all environmental change through a social lens and we understand what political what social what economic factors actually influence people's you know decision making processes around the extraction of material resources or waste dumping, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did my master's in that um, in, in Barcelona, and I was looking at you know palm oil conflicts, and I was really interested in studying the political economy of the palm oil industry. So and also the political ecology. So for who are the actors that are interested in this? So they're biofuels, right? So who uses energy mostly in societies? It's good for uh, animal feed. Who uses? Who's raising animals for agriculture? You just kind of look at the different dimensions and all of the beliefs that are pinned upon this one plant. Um, So in the case of ayahuasca, I decided to start studying it that way. Um, And I started to look at the different words that people use to describe ayahuasca. So in my my research, I've found that people tend to anthropomorphize ayahuasca. They say it's a feminine entity. She is coming to heal us all. They'll say it's a database. It's sort of a plug into the matrix and you see everything there ever was and ever will be. And, And I was just fascinated by this diversity of different, you know, ideas about ayahuasca. But what I noticed is that people weren't talking about it like like a commodity, like a plant. People weren't saying, you know, this is a plant that's bought and sold on an emerging global marketplace. Um, and I, I live in Peru now, and I work with a, a nonprofit organization there called the Chaikuni Institute. Um, and with them, you know, we've, we've, we've heard a lot of 
pretty devastating testimonials about about local people who are having um, restricted access to the plant, you know, the the vine, the Benisteriopsis copy vine. Um, and it's, you know, they need to go farther and farther out into the forest to find it. Um, people who are buying it are getting smaller and smaller vines. And this is totally predictable, right? Like it's, it's a classic issue in any kind of herbal trade. But What's kind of weird about it is that because ayahuasca is, you know, in quotes, a spiritual or a sacred substance, and I actually do believe in a degree of sort of specialness about it, but there's something about speaking about a, a mystical substance that kind of obscures the uh, economic reality of it or even the material reality of it. It's like, oh, we can't talk about money around this. So if you ever try to go to an ayahuasca ceremony, people will say like, oh, the exchange for this prayer is $200 mm-hmm. or it's kind of like cryptic vocabulary that's used to describe these things. And I always remember this this Hungarian neo-shaman would take a bowl of water and he would dip the money that we would pay for the ceremony in it and he would let it sit in there overnight. So he was just kind of symbolically cleaning the money, which to me indicated that there's some sort of an interesting contradiction you know, lying in this idea of paying for something sacred, paying for healing, paying for access to a different dimension, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and that's what I study today, yeah. And, and, and now I'm looking more at, more than anything, I'm looking at the sustainability issue around ayahuasca and also around peyote too. It's not something I study, but the small spineless cactus that grows uh, in northern Mexico and southern United States. Yeah, there's, 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 I mean, and obviously, right, we're, we're talking about decriminalization, we're talking about democratizing these medicines and more and more people are taking them. Um, but we're not really looking at the root or the actual plant or the real people that are interacting with these things and harvesting them for our consumption. So um, if we are saying that we are reading, reaching at least some sort of degree of enlightenment or, you know, heightened perception of things, then, you know, it would probably behoove us to actually start thinking about the commodity chain and um, where these things come from. It is so funny to me, like, uh, just, just last night, I don't know. I remember um, uh, right after my panel, and uh, there was a there was a, a girl that came up and joined us, and she was talking about trying to put together a show like this traveling show, and she, basically like this gypsy show that she's trying to put together. And I was like explaining how to like monetize things and, and market them and stuff, and and she's like, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm going for. I'm like, not I'm a capitalist. Changing Jane. the world, and, <laughs> and there is funny like this dirtiness um, to to monetizing something, and I'm like, mm. oh, I, like. I'm taking time and energy mm. right now and giving it to you and uh, within this within this conversation and and you're you're giving me your time and energy these are these are energetic exchanges and ex- and money is just like this this way of kind of labeling it and it's just the subjective reality and it mm-hmm. is it is funny that money is this thing that because I, I I mean I don't know if it's just a response to you know uh, capitalist greed which is like out of control but that's just you know humans have a way of fucking up everything and abusing everything mm. uh, money being one of them drugs relationships any you know we, we 
everything can be used inappropriately. Yeah. And I don't know if this community is in particular or if it's For something sure. to do with spirituality where it's like, oh, that's so dirty and mm-hmm. trying to wash their hands of mm-hmm. that. And Big time, yeah. I mean, within the psychedelic community, at least in the United States, it's been a hugely controversial issue, um, you know, around around paying for psychedelics and around, you know, investing in psychedelic research and getting big venture capitalists involved in this because, you know, you know, in, in kind of enmeshing in, in psychedelics in a for-profit framework is going to create situations that are going to create competition and, you know, potentially harmful, um, you know, un, unforeseen outcomes. And like, for example, with ayahuasca, right, just these externalities that we kind of write off as basic practice, which, um, which are are complicated but you know i also think there's something about the ineffable that when you try to put a price tag on the ineffable it kind of defeats the purpose or something i, I i'm well, not i don't know what, what do you think about so some I, I think a lot about this because because i've always i've had these experiences that everyone's like oh there's no words for this and but i'm a wordsmith you know and, mm. a, and a communicator i'm like no i can I can put it into words. I can describe it. Maybe not clearly enough, and and maybe I'm not uh, hitting a bullseye, but I can. I can, I'll take a shot at it, and and I think like uh, it, you know, and there's we're walking around. There's these amazing visual artists painting it. No one's like, no one's like, you can't paint that. Um, or maybe there are cultures well, that are like you're not. Supposed I know. To. I know of people. Yeah, that are like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, don't paint. But but there is something like to me. It it seems a little bit suspicious of like trying to control it. If because if this is like sacred, and this is like we we don't question this, and also we don't talk about it. And this is my religious upbringing coming up. It's just it's also a way of just like, hey, everyone, you guys should do what I tell you you should do and mm-hmm. and my point of view is the correct mm-hmm. one and you shouldn't and you should never question and it seems like there's something with that going on in this whenever we use these default like vagaries yeah i mean our culture specifically we're, we're extremely verbal communicators right here we are just like blabbering away into mm-hmm. microphones and i, I know with the, again with the sequoia um in ecuador they you know they're, they're not just people aren't talking as much, you know, they're translating their feelings and their experiences through actions more. Um, and I know, and I know in my experiences with them, they'll actually encourage you not to do these like, you know, verbose, uh, integration circles that are so popular these days because people, because the experiences and the, and the perceptions are still kind of like settling in, you know, and especially right off following this, the psychedelic experience, you're, you're still processing stuff, right? And you may even have a week or even a month where you're like, Oh, that's what that thing was about. That's what I was thinking about that for. And the second that you kind of use a word, you're pinning it down. You're yeah. pinning the butterfly down. Right. And, and it's nice to like, show to people and and you'll kind of crystallize the story for yourself um, and it's very challenging for us to not say it but once you say it it's as if it's no longer yours almost it, it kind of escapes it yeah i i ran into a lot of trouble with that when i had my manic episode and everything and you know because mania and then i like i wanted to tell everyone this very important you know these these patterns that i was picking up on and seeing life in this new way and everyone needs under and you know i was selective about who i was who i was telling i knew that much um but but still um the problem was i would say something like 
this synchronistic thing happened and it's because of this. And then a day later, I'd be like, no, that wasn't quite right. But because I would, I'd said it, I'd kind of committed. Right. Exactly. To the idea. And then, and then, and so rather than like abandoning that, I was still trying to like, okay, well, what I was saying, like, let me say it like this. Let me rephrase it. You know, rather than scrapping the whole thing, it was like, oh, rephrasing. I, I was, I was holding on to that like initial little bit of, uh, the structure of the conceptualization that I had, which, which was probably better off abandoned in, in most cases. And I, I think I really got myself in a, a lot of trouble that way. Whereas if I would have just kept my mouth shut yeah. for a little while, you could have still been Jesus, stuff. but just inside your head and nobody <laughs> would be <laughs> calling you out for it. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Um, that, that's interesting because this is, we live in these worlds now where the big, movement going forward is you're actually sitting with a therapist and discussing these things and yeah. then they're helping you interpret or these these integration circles as well which I are do. super important by the way super super important to have a community that you feel safe with to process the things that you may have experienced or seen but yeah i always get a little bit edgy around it when people are like oh what did you see what did you see you know and mm. it's it's interesting the buiti in in gabon who I, I i've never worked with them before but they um i haven't worked with them before um but they're they're sacrament is iboga which is a it's a little it's a little it's a shrub um and people will sit sit around like the they'll the the buiti will sit around the initiate the person who's taking this kind of heroic dose of that of that plant and they'll they'll just be asking you to constantly keep saying and saying what you know what is it that you're seeing what is it that you're seeing at every single second during the actual trip when you can't tell your head from your feet or the sky from the whatever you know and so you're saying you know i'm seeing my mom i'm seeing the window i'm seeing the cat blah 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 and then if you say you see a shape, that's interesting. Then they're like, okay, cool. Hurrah. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the interesting information, right? So that's, that's a very different way of navigating through the use of that plant. And that's an extremely different ritual. But with ayahuasca, I mean, it's pretty much, again, and it's impossible to say, right? Because ayahuasca is consumed by communities traditionally all across the Amazon, an area actually as as wide as New York City to Colorado, there are communities drinking ayahuasca, mm. um, and there are indigenous communities. There are you know people who were, were once working as rubber tappers. There are Afro American, there are Afro Brazilian communities. It's it's super super diverse, and the practices are pretty markedly different. But in almost everyone, there's sound and there's music, and it's kind of through that music that you're able to articulate um, guttural sighs of relief or sort of tinny whining you know really uncomfortable sounds and those almost suit the emotions and the feelings and, yeah. and that experience way better than any kind of word that we could try to plaster onto it and they're singing themselves through it kind of like affirming the actual happening of these things just through through sound yeah i i'm kind of reminded of i don't know if this is a perfect parallel but um people have had synesthesia forever but no no one's before they knew what synesthesia was and a lot of people lived their whole lives with synesthesia not realizing that their perception was was different and and there's like a famous conductor i don't know in the 1800s or something like that who would be like i need i need a little more violet 
from from yeah. the horn section. Yeah. What do you mean? And blue doesn't first, taste like chicken. Yeah. Yeah. At first, they'd be like Violet, what? And he'd be like getting angry, like Violet, Violet. and so they just like keep on oh, trying to change amazing. things until he'd be like, yes, yes, that's it. And then they would just do more of what he was saying. So then, so then they would learn to translate what so Violet means like C minor to one person, or it means like this button on the horn and it seems like something is maybe similar going on with like the translation of wanting to see the shapes of wanting to translate it in music interesting yeah i mean for for the shipibo so i i now live and work with the community called the shipibo um and they're based mostly in peru but also they have a small diaspora in, in brazil as well um and they have this sort of technique of embroidery they call kene K-E-N-E. And if you look at these like Shipibo tapestries, which have become quite trendy in the psychedelic scene, they're like these really, really beautiful, elaborate geometric ge- geometric patterns. And those patterns represent different um, shapes that correspond to different elemental factors in their world. So everything from the bone to the ceramic vessel to a connection to an animal, these are all translated through kind of geometric forms that don't necessarily have like a corresponding visual relation to that thing right so these these kind of patterns um can also be sung so through the sound you can kind of go uh, 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 right you can kind of follow the lines of the sound and that's how they perceive the fabric of the universe through sound and through shape actually and they're very intimately inextricably uh, connected, woven together. So, so often when they're healing, and this is again, I mean, I'm certainly not an authority on Shipibo healing, but it, from what I understand, you know, the the ikaros that they sing, the healing songs that they sing, correspond to these kene, the patterns and patterns of the world. And when they see somebody, when they see a patient or just a person sitting in front of them, they might see the patterns and the and the medicines, the ayahuascas or the different um, plants that they may be taking can kind of Heighten your perception of those patterns. Mm. And from there, they will straighten out your patterns by singing them straight. Hmm. They will go into the places by huffing and, you know, really intense, like it's like dental surgery almost, but it's, it's all through sound, right? Mm. Um, and you can almost hear them like whoop, rip the sound out and suddenly you feel like you just had this I don't know, piece of garbage just ripped out of your rib cage or something. Hmm. And it's very immersive and very sophisticated. And for them, I mean, there is this kind of synesthetic capacity that's just interwoven into, into the, into the way they are, into their whole culture. Have you ever heard of the Bobo and Kiki study? Not yet. Um, so, so there's these two African shapes and one of them is like kind of like a, a cloud and one of them's one of them's like kind of like a sharp like starry shape and one of them is bobo and one of them is kiki can you guess which one is which oh is the rounder one yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so those are like made up words sure. and and they they're like and this is people reliably are like that that shape is the bobo it's onomatopoeia one. i guess no? is that the word yeah i yeah, think so right and yeah like a sound that sounds like a 
Yeah, were we talking about this in Azora? Maybe we, 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 we who knows? Who knows? Uh, um, but but, but uh, there's also like your your mouth makes a certain. Oh yes, Mama uh, and Papa. Sure. I mean, yeah. I, I I'm I'm ashamed to say I can't cite this study, but mm-hmm. yeah, the first sound that children make almost everywhere around the words are Mama and Papa, and um and they're. You know, that's they're just relating to the things that are closest to them. Mm-hmm. So, mama is probably the mom because it's you know, she's the closest, and papa is the, the second closest thing, or you know, generally right. that's the order. And those are just the shapes that the mouth make when, when your palate is forming. Yeah, 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 yeah. Last thing about kind of the experience of synesthesia, and all it just has so much to do with some of the things that we've been saying. So, my, my favorite. Um, idea. I'm not sure if I actually came up with this. I think that I read it somewhere and think in my mind I came up with it. It could be a genius. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's Capgras, um, syndrome, this imposter syndrome. You have, um, what happens if someone wakes up from, say, a coma or some brain aneurysm or something like that. They're perfectly normal in every other regard, except, um, and they talk to their family on the phone and they're excited. Hey, I'm okay. And then the family comes and they get really strange when they see them. And then they, right. and then they go back. They talk to them on the phone. Hey, you should come back. And then, and then they eventually confide in the doctor. That the reason I'm being weird is these aren't my parents. They look like my parents, but they must be actors, right. something like that. And the and the reason they think is because there was a um, uh, the connection from the the visual um, uh, in, information to the amygdala um, got severed, and so normally you would see your parents and have whether you know usually on a non conscious level you would have this feeling of like these are the people that raised me and nurtured me and blah 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 and because you don't feel the same love the same connection um you create this conscious story of are these people imposters well a lot of what psychedelics seem to do is just the opposite in many ways and like the synesthesia of creating different so if you do a psychedelic and instead you heighten the the visual information uh, amygdala response now do you look out around the world and be like look at mother nature and mother ayahuasca and like father time and and everything's so connected and and i love everything and it it do you know what I'm? Yeah, I, I'm saying like it's, yeah, the, the dendrites are getting activated. Yeah, yeah and yeah. it's just like, well, if you look at an MRI, there's just more connections right. being made, and then yeah. everyone's like, I feel so connected to everything. Well, that is, you're just. I mean, my way of looking at it is uh, that's just a consciousness's way of articulating the experience of the inner world. For sure, for sure. And what's interesting to me is like, oh, what do we do with that experience? Like suddenly once you see all these people on the subway, like your sister and brother and father, like how 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 does that change your behavior moving Mm -hmm. forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So back to to specifically your stuff, what, what... as this is becoming more and more popularized, and I mean, uh, the Amazon uh, ayahuasca right now is is probably like uh, of the things that the Amazon is being absolutely destroyed over. It's probably not at the very top of the list. It's right so now. not at the top of the list. Um, yeah, <laughs> but but uh, and, and so, which is exactly why people aren't talking about this. But what well, are people these? aren't talking too much about deforestation, in my opinion, right, either. Right. <laughs> 
what, what was your, uh, the quote I read in the book is, uh, what was three football fields a minute? Yeah. Yeah. Like those are, those are the numbers coming out these days uh, of deforestation. Of deforestation a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what are these, um, like what do you even do with that information? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it, in my mind, I just see like the, a map and I just see this line of like a bulldozer just yeah. paving through it. Um, but what are, you know, what's this look like on the ground? I'm, I'm sure people that are, um, you know, live in a world, they're part of their identity, part of their community is this ayahuasca vine and now it's being over harvested. What are, what are the implications? Um, well, I mean, I guess, you know, honestly, from a, from a broader ecological outlook that the, you know, the over harvesting of ayahuasca isn't going to collapse the ecosystem. Um, ayahuasca is a vine. It likes to climb up trees. It takes anywhere from five to 10 years to grow to really maturity to be able to be harvested. And that, you know, varies depending on the soil conditions and the lighting and all these different sorts of um, variables. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the question of ayahuasca harvesting isn't necessarily so much of an environmental question as it is a social question, you know, because when right now we're, we're, we're drawing from wild supplies. Um, so that it, what that means is people just kind of trekking out into the forest and going and just taking machetes and hacking uh, the vines often down to the root, just, you know, to make it a little faster and easier. Um, but, in the end of the day, you know, this environmental change has social implications. And that basically means that local communities who used to use this or continue to use it are no longer able to get get their central sacrament, right? So it's something, it's like a cool one-time path, like one-time bucket list thing to do for some of us well for them it's like it's their everything it's at this it's at the center of the way that they organize communities and they solve uh conflicts and all these different sorts of things and, and it's the same thing with peyote too also i mean i i heard this weechel woman um you know tearfully describing the fact that there's there's just less and less of the peyote and that's their access point to their ancestors actually so it is really a question of um connecting to 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 their to their meaning of life really so that so in in that respect i mean it's 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 catastrophic um but environmentally speaking as far as i know because again you know the ecosystems are so intimately interlinked that we can't really possibly understand what the impact of one thing disappearing may be um but it's it's not you know comparatively that that dramatic but yeah i mean and i've also seen real real desertification in the forest Mm. um when people talk about you know destruction in the amazon you would think oh you just cut the trees down and then you know they'll grow right back but actually where i am and if you just stick your fingers in the ground there it's sand it's all sand underneath Mm. so once you take that delicate canopy away um it all dries out by the intense heat of the amazonian sun Mm. and it becomes a desert um not a lot of life sustains in a desert no not a lot i mean perhaps archaeological remnants may be preserved kind of well but i we're not i don't want to think in those kinds of terms so yeah so i mean one of the one of the projects that i'm working on in peru or in it right now is a small scale reforestation initiative you know and it's really um bringing revitalizing um kind of dead soils that have been burnt down um and creating extremely biodiverse small plots of lands um and then integrating ayahuasca as a component 
of that land. And that's, and that's a permaculture model. So permaculture means permanent agriculture. So the idea is that, you know, any, any household, any family could consistently throughout the year be reaping some sort of a, a crop from, from their little piece of land there. If it's a pepper, if it's a hardwood tree, or in five years, if it's ayahuasca, it's a highly, highly di- biodiverse piece of land that can, you know, bolster their own food sovereignty, but also just revitalize the soil, drawing down carbon um, and you know perhaps mo- most interestingly for you know psychedelic enthusiasts is is growing ayahuasca in a sustainable um, way hmm. so I um, didn't warn you about this because there's no need to I usually have oh, my no. guests each week plug a um, a nonprofit of their choice but I already knew that you <laughs> would have no uh, no problem thinking of it because you work with several organizations. I sure do. So let's talk about them. Yeah. So, I mean, today I work with the Chaikuni Institute. Um, Chaikuni is a small nonprofit. We work in the Peruvian Amazon um, near the Iquitos region. Um, and we're an intercultural team that's focusing in three main areas. We work in human and environmental rights. Um, we work in education and we work in permaculture. So, you know, the human and environmental rights might be helping communities sort of campaign and put things together when it comes to uh, despotic uh, sort of forest uh, planning from, you know, any kind of corporations or government action. Um, it could, And then from the education part, we really advocate for intercultural bilingual education in schools. Um, so people who speak indigenous languages can also have their right to be practicing and sort of learning um, in, an, in an educational context their 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 mother tongues um, and then yeah the, the permaculture institute which is really kind of developing long-term solutions and supporting communities through uh, planning and through technical support to help them kind of uh, mitigate any impacts from you know massive deforestation we see around the region and actually create cool fun solutions um, that will sustain them in a way that kind of celebrates life in the Amazon. Hmm. Well, thank you for reminding me how incredibly lazy I am. <laughs> you, oh. you, you, you are doing so many things. You're doing, you're writing, and yet here you're we are, books, just and you're having fun. What a balanced human being. I am you having are. fun. I mean, I'm, you know, Shane, I'm really grateful for my life. I really am yeah. so grateful for my life. And, and I, I, it, it comes, I mean, I'm going to put in the privilege plug in here, but like, I'm freaking lucky, you know, I'm mm-hmm. so damn lucky. I was born with so much luck. And, um, and I guess, you know, two things you got to do. One, help other people, you know, just like everybody should be as lucky as I am, I think, honestly. And then just just enjoy it, you know, just freaking enjoy it. Because if we don't enjoy it, who will, right? Life is too short. Yeah. We're all going to die. So... <laughs> Yeah. That's and true. also, I mean, I, I had like a revelation recently I, in my brief forays into academia. I kind of I started to get very cynical, you know, because we were looking at all this critical, just everything was so critical. And and, and for years, I was just criticizing everything. I was criticizing the psychedelic culture. I was criticizing environmental policy. I was criticizing this and that and this and that without any sort of hope for a beautiful future. Um, and and we see this a lot with activists and and academics and people who are really kind of critically engaging with their environments, you know? Um, But at the end of the day, I don't think that that many of us can hold the grief of our, of our current ecological context with, with so much anger and so much 
yeah. bitter bitter cynicism. So, I mean, for me at least, I've I've been I really like the distinction between the words sustainable and regenerative. Sustainable kind of implies like, oh, we're just kind of gonna get by here. We'll mm. figure it out <laughs> later. Right. In my mind, right, we're just sustaining life on Earth versus regenerating, which is like, wow, we can actually be revitalizing land we can actually be creating really beautiful things here um and it's just about you know the the vantage point or the entry point that you kind of approach your work with so i hope to bring optimism and beauty and joy anywhere oh, I go. and you do uh, oh. and you're a terrific communicator <laughs> i hope to have you on the podcast again um sometime yeah. and let's get I'm in a fight next hoping time hoping to <laughs> I, I hope we get in a fight that i don't know what we'd fight about but that would be wonderful and the audience would love it um but um i i so one i want to say because at the time this is coming out listeners this will have been recorded a couple months earlier so um so the book will be out now at the time that this is uh releasing so people can get it on amazon and um mcnally jackson uh, yeah everywhere else everywhere else and um and then I want to make sure I'm going to try to get Sophia on a, on a stand up science show or three. So keep up to date, um, with me with that guys. Cause, uh, excellent presenter. That's yeah. another thing. I I'm make weird of. faces. You're like, That's really what no, you don't. You're, you're <laughs> a natural. Are, are there places online that people could see any talks that you've given? Uh, well, I guess by, by, by now, um, my, my breaking convention presentation should be up there. So you can yes. check me out there. Yeah. Just. I don't know. Look for me on the internet. Don't laugh at my old teenager headshots. I was, it was a mood. <laughs> <laughs> what about like Twitter or Instagram? Yeah, Twitter, Instagram, Sophia Rockland. You can find me on either. Um, I guess I'm trying to use Twitter more. I don't know if anyone really cares, but you and I just had an interesting conversation about it, how yeah. like Instagram just shamelessly validates, you know, the more vain posts, like the selfies and the this and the that. So, you know, I think Twitter is probably a better medium for communicating ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so let's talk there. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Speaking of enjoying ourselves, it's the last day at the conference. We got to go out there and, and suck it all up while we can. So let's go um, eat some grass. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> is, is that what we're doing? Uh, all right. It's the next I, big I, thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for a good adventure. All right, we're off to eat grass. Thank you guys so much for listening and being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Guys, I just finished When Plants Dream on Libro.fm. You can go to offer code here we are to get your first three months for the price of one. Libro is the only audiobook company that works directly with your local independent bookstore. You download it from your local independent bookstore. They split half of the profits. Or just the same catalog, same price as any other audiobook company, but you're supporting your local independent bookstore. That's all. It's the only difference. It's a good thing to do. We need more of them around, and they are slowly dying out. It's a tragedy. Go to Libro.fm. Check out When Plants Dream Today, one of the most thorough, balanced, interesting books on psychedelics i've seen in a long time there's a there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh psychedelic books i I don't read much many books on psychedelics because some of them have such a narrow take in perspective 
um, I, I find and and some of it's just a little too far out there for me I don't I don't feel like it's grounded enough um, um, and then things can go the other way things can be too academic um, and and not allow room for um, maybe maybe some of the I don't know if I would say spiritual takes on things but alternative takes on on these really complicated, confusing, interesting experiences. And this book did it all. Really, really impressed. Um, so check it out. And if you're interested in goblin psilocybin mushrooms with me in a legal psilocybin retreat in Jamaica in January, make sure and sign up soon. Well, the spots still last. It's just you, me, and 15 other listeners in an all-inclusive week of every other day doing some mushrooms chatting about it and getting to know one another and hopefully having some nice therapeutic breakthroughs and having uh, just one of the more wonderful weeks of your life that's the goal and um, I've, I've done five of them now and they're always just so incredible that I, I keep on coming back so next week on the show two part uh it's bonus episode week next week so doing actually a two-part episode two episodes in a row with barrett klein insect researcher not only is he just incredibly knowledgeable and interesting and funny but the single most enthusiastic human being i have ever met in my life and quite the joy to talk to so I invited him on for a second time as soon as we're done with this uh, with the first one and you'll get both of those together next week such a great episode so check those out and if you're into more psychedelic stuff why don't you talk more about psychedelics on the show well like i said i like to keep those worlds and my uh science podcast a little separate just so you know there's there's a lot of reasons there's stigma involved i don't i don't want people to just focus on the psychedelic episodes and 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 that sort of thing um but i get that many of you listeners out there it's one of your favorite subjects to hear about well i was just at the neuroscience psychedelic symposium in uh at the university of michigan in ann arbor and i recorded a very very special episode nine researchers it's a three-part almost three hours long uh, three researchers per hour and uh, and for one huge psychedelic research extravaganza episode nine guests almost three hours long that's going to be coming out and I got to figure out the timing on that but that'll be coming out um, probably sometime next month so don't worry we're getting we're getting more um, psychedelic research on there so uh so yeah there's all of those things what else do i need to tell you about stand-up science keep on checking that out and supporting it um by the time you're listening to this let's see royal oak michigan cleveland ohio washington dc richmond virginia raleigh north carolina greensboro north carolina asheville north carolina athens georgia by the way one of my best friends mike kaplan is going to be joining me on many of these shows he's usually off headlining his own things doing his own tv spots run uh, being guests on 
big podcast himself and i was able to get him to tag along for a uh fantastic little run of stand-up science and after that i'll be in nashville and adding a bunch more dates very very soon so keep checking back on that like i discussed last week I'm, i'm trying to keep on improving the quality of the show and have um like in in raleigh north carolina i'm having this guy herman ponser who was already on once before and and was like one of the best guests so i'm having him on back again i'm trying to figure out over time how to uh you know see the people that work really well with it maybe even see if some of them will if they're on a sabbatical or something come along tag along with me um for a couple weeks um just so they can like really fine-tune their thing and we can gel more on stage that's that's what uh, i'm aiming for for the future tons of constraints on that so many logistical problems and not everyone's going to have the availability and or the interest in in um in tagging along with me for two weeks or whatever but i'm trying i'm i'm figuring it out and this this show stand-up science keeps on getting better and better and i have more projects on the way so keep on supporting keep on spreading the word there's still cities once in a while i lose money in one of these cities or barely break even some uh, sometimes it does uh, really well i'm still figuring out what cities it does does the best in but uh it is um (laughs) probably don't need to tell you it's it's um really exceptionally stressful when i when i find myself um you know breaking even or losing money on a show and then um i obviously it just makes it um a lot of times it's just because we need to move into bigger venues and change ticket price and stuff but um it just makes things so much easier when we get pre-sale tickets and word spread ahead of time which that that is happening i don't mean to be complaining um it around four out of five of these shows is is doing really well and drawing a really good crowd so still just working on figuring out the perfect markets for it and how to increase the quality and maybe move to some larger rooms and stuff so that's all the updates with me thanks for checking out some of the um behind the scenes stuff in the outro i i know you got a lot of podcasts and other things to listen to and and so taking the extra time to find out what i have going on means a whole lot to me and that's why those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites
Today's outro music is brought to you by Moon Station Burning. If you want to discover more great indie music, check out Jimmy Fro's indie music show on iTunes Podcast today. Jimmy is the editor of this podcast and also has a fantastic ear for discovering great new music. So check out Jimmy Fro's indie music show today. Stop it, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.